Section one of The Nature and Authority of Conscience by Rufus Jones, read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Nature and Authority of Conscience, Chapter One Introductory Considerations. The sublime requires the unknown as an element. A cathedral should never be finished. A mountain should be partially hidden by others or enveloped in clouds, wrote Horsch Bushnell many years ago. In other words, a sense of the infinite and eternal must be aroused in us before we call the object which moves us sublime. It was precisely that aspect which made Kant couple the moral nature within us with the stars in the infinite sky above us, as the two most sublime things in the universe. Both are incapable of boundary. Both are enveloped in mystery. Both emerge from, and forever suggest, a deeper world of reality. Both are full of hints and prophecies of more than appears. I am not for the moment concerned with the sublimity of the stars. I'm thinking of that other sublimity, nearer to us and yet even more mysterious, the moral nature in us revealed in personal conscience. We are just now made very familiar with a persistent attempt to reduce man, with all his inner furnishings, to a purely naturalistic being, a forked radish, as Shakespeare puts it, with a head fantastically carved. The only thing that concerns us, naturalism asserts, in the study of man, is his behavior, i.e., what he does in response to his environment. For this alone can be accurately described and explained. Whenever we catch him, he is doing something or he is preparing to do something. A natural process is underway, and this process is due to his native structure plus the influence of his environment. His motives all have a long history in the development of the race behind him and in the social influences that have shaped him. That exalted thing in him which is named moral nature or moral consciousness fades away under this analysis into the phrase accumulated habits of the race, and ethics and religion become a branch of anthropology a study of behavior merely pushed back toward the historical starting point of our strange forked radish. There can be no debate about the importance of exact description. We have no quarrel with it. We are under immense obligation to science for the conquests which it has made, and there is no objection at all to the method of ignoring temporarily certain concrete features of the world and of life, as science does, in order to facilitate the work of abstract description and of conquest. But at the same time it is well not to forget the fact that life and the world are full of aspects and experiences which do not permit of exact description or of scientific formulation of the mathematical type. This does not mean that they are not real, or that they are supernatural. It means, rather, that they possess a type of reality which cannot be got at by the method of analysis and description. They must be dealt with as integral wholes rather than as things made up by the aggregation of many smaller units. 
all our values of life are of this sort. Beauty cannot be reduced to elemental parts, described and causally explained. Our consciousness of the worth of persons who are precious to us cannot be dissected into the original items which compose it. The certainty of conviction which attaches to our insights of truth defies all analysis. The goodness of a pure moral life admits of no adequate analytic description. We have passed out of the sphere of molecular currents, where things result from the conjuries of atoms, and we are in a world now which includes creative spirit, and so has sublimities in it. The world of the senses is indeed a very real world. It touches us at every point. It knocks at all the outer doors of our being. It stands all the tests by which we try its reality. It is surely there. It is foolish to deny it or to call it illusion. If it is not real, then we have no certainty that anything is real. But it cannot be the whole of reality. It is forever a fragment of a more comprehensive reality, an outer periphery which is never self-explanatory and which demands an inner spiritual center to complete and explain it. This does not mean, however, that there are two worlds alongside of or outside of each other, a material or sensuous world occupying its sphere and ending where the fringes of the spiritual begin. We shall never return again to a theory of nature set over against a foreign and exclusive supernatural parted by an impassable chasm. One soon discovers at sea that the horizon which divides the visible part of the ocean from the larger invisible part of the same ocean is an unreal and only imaginary line of boundary. It alters every moment. The sky, too, turns out to be just as unreal. The sky-dome is only our way of seeing the upper airspace. There is no dome of crystal up there yonder, bounding the world of nature below and beginning the realm of the supersensuous world, the ethereal domain where God dwells in his unapproachable glory. That two-world scheme has gone by and was annihilated when Ptolemaic astronomy was exploded. No journey upward into space brings one to God, however far one may travel. Not thus can we supply the defects of naturalism. No ladder goes up from the top of nature to the supernatural above it, as though they were arranged in tiers. The beyond is within. It is through the soul of man, the inner self, that the way lies to God. It is close at hand, within us, that the two levels are found, a conscious self always aware of, always confronted with, a more, a beyond. We are forever double. We are woefully limited and finite, and yet we are inextricably bound in and conjoined with the infinite. Eternity is in our hearts. We meet every finite object of sense with the universal through which we interpret it and name it to our common fellowship, a universal which no sense experience ever gave us or ever could give us. 
from some deeper inner world of mind we draw those inevitable compulsions of mathematics and logic to which all facts of experience must conform something in us but derived from something beyond us enables us to gather up the fleeting and contingent under eternal and necessary forms so that we can declare that this truth is true not only for me but for all men everywhere and forever it is also because of this inner junction with the infinite and eternal that we are moved by objects of beauty and exalted and raised beyond ourselves by the sense of awe and sublimity here too in this meeting of our own deepest nature with that which is beyond ourselves is born our ineradicable sense of moral obligation which makes conscience such an august and unanalyzable voice when it lays its command upon us and says thou must it is because of this deepest feature of our being that we always live by ideals and judge each fact or event or experience in the light of a goodness which we do not see with our eyes and which does not perhaps yet exist on sea or land a beyond within us which our moral act endeavors to achieve the two worlds are never sharply divided and sundered they merge and mingle each needs the other and each reveals the other the outer world is more or less transparent to the clairvoyant soul that sees through and discovers the eternal breaking through it and the most spiritual reality in the universe needs a temporal and visible manifestation and revelation to express and translate it the soul of man is thus amphibious it lives in two worlds at once it lives outward and has its world of sense but it always remains in undivided contact with spirit and so transcends and passes beyond all the facts and things and happenings in the thin fragment of reality that is tangible to sense end of chapter one introductory considerations